The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I cannot tell you how many writers I've coached that are so sheepish if they don't write every day. And I'm always trying to get them to make the discernment between are you spending time with your project? Are you doing the deep thinking? Are you doing the structural work? All of that stuff counts. It's not procrastination. You need to discern whether it's procrastination. Obviously, some of it can be, and research can certainly be one. But there's this this sort of this driving idea. It's so prevalent and so strong that if we're not actually producing words, we're not writing. And, and that I see it lead to a lot of really bad writing because people are like, well, I did my 500 words or I did my thousand words. I'm like, well, okay, great. But like for the sake of what, (laughs) what is it part of? Like, what, what are you up to here? Greetings and welcome back to the writer files. I am your host, Calvin Reed. Uh, this week, best-selling author and creativity coach Jennifer Loudon dropped by to talk with me about her twisty career path, the wicked feedback loop of procrastination, how to find your voice, and innovative solutions for getting unstuck and back to writing. Jennifer's been a professional writer since the early 90s and is considered a personal growth pioneer. Her first book, The Woman's Comfort Book, was the bestseller that launched her career, and she's since published six additional books with over a million copies in print in nine languages. The author is an international speaker and educator on the subject of self-care and has written a column for Martha Stewart Magazine, been quoted by author Brene Brown in not one but two of her books, been profiled in dozens of major magazines, and appeared on hundreds of TV and radio programs, including Oprah. In addition to writing books, Jennifer's also an entrepreneur who teaches writing, creativity, and self-care retreats that regularly sell out. She's created a large online community that touts 
quote, whether you're a novelist, essayist, artist, or thought leader, her mission is to help you write more, share your ideas more boldly, and make your creative work a priority. And just a quick note that this episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by the inspiring team at Author Accelerator. You know that book idea rattling around in your head? Well, now's the time to take it seriously. And working with an Author Accelerator book coach is the best way to write forward. Author Accelerator book coaches give writers feedback, accountability, and support while you write so that you can get that idea out of your head and onto the page. And if you think book coaching sounds like a gig you'd like to do, many authors and copywriters have the exact skill set needed to become great book coaches themselves, including managing a project and understanding that creative process. Author Accelerator offers intensive book coach training and master classes so that you can add this premium service to your own arsenal. Writers can just head over to authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles for more info and to get the free seven-day writing challenge to start mapping out your own book. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles. In part one of this file, Jennifer and I discussed how a struggling dyslexic screenwriter became a best-selling author, the reasons writers might fall out of love and then back in love with their own writing, how to get unstuck by pulling back the curtain on your brain's weaknesses, why Jennifer brings compassion and cognitive awareness to jumpstarting creativity, how finding the why of your writing can reignite your spark, and why technical writing hacks won't solve the deeper issues of why you're not writing. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. And we are rolling once again on The Writer Files. I have an esteemed guest joining me today. Jennifer Loudon is here and uh, I'm looking forward to rapping with you about all things writing creativity and uh productivity how are you today i just have to say we can't start with esteemed because then i already feel the pressure and then my brain is <laughs> going to shut down and i'm not going to be able to perform and okay. let's, let's lower the bar right now <laughs> all right let me wind that one back i am i am here with a human, a human being <laughs> and uh we won't set you up for any <laughs> funny how we do that though right it's that yeah. self-concept right away that self-concept and now i have to be smart right right and i know you, you've talked about this um at length on some other podcasts but i think it is interesting that um you know kind of that expectation of or no the question of you know when you meet somebody at a party what what do you do mm. um is is just so loaded isn't it it is. My husband says he thinks it's rude. And they, yeah. he's lived in other countries. He says nobody does that in other countries. Right. Um, but I, I I tend to think of it in um, a way, like we just don't know how to connect. We don't know how to ask questions like, 
what are you interested in? Or what's the last time you felt really alive? Or what do you like to do for fun? And so we default to these identities that we have. And our, our brains like to typecast us, right? Yeah. We, do it, we do it in a quarter of a second when we meet someone. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think that is an American trait uh, and a hard one to break. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous I do that. Yeah, I find myself dreading dreading those um those awkward interactions at a party where you're you're meeting a stranger for the first time and you know it's coming <laughs> what do you say <laughs> you know I, I don't know i try to come up with something creative or or i'll just lie like i'm a <laughs> i've done that before i'm oh a detective God. and uh <laughs> i and i moonlight as a uh a bikini model for for plus size men's uh Oh my God, I have done that. So, oh my, that's <laughs> terrible. Oh my, that made my day. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's talk about you and uh, your very um, interesting story and how you became the Jennifer Loudon that we know today. Maybe go back a little bit and talk um, some about, because I know you, you have mentioned that you uh, have been making a living as a writer since the early 90s, right? Yeah. Yeah, 1992, my first book was published. I didn't make a lot of money before then. I was a struggling, pretty unsuccessful screenwriter. Interesting, interesting. Um, and I've I've been in that in those shoes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, um, you know, kind of, how did your life change when when you became a best selling author? And um, then, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about this this kind of circuitous path to um, what you do today. Well, uh, let's see, where to start, where to start? I was born, no. Um, <laughs> so I, I always wanted to be creative. I wanted to make things. And originally it was writing fiction, you know, as it like, you know, in high school and making movies, you know, in grade school. And I ended up taking the film school path. I went to USC and graduated and, and realized as I was in those years of school that a lot of the things I thought I would do, which is maybe direct or edit or be a cinematographer, um, being a woman in the early 80s as a film director was pretty darn impossible. Hmm. A few friends ended up making it, but not most of us. So I gave up on that pretty quick. And then editing and cinematography both proved to be very difficult for me because I have some pretty weird learning disabilities, which I didn't know of at the time. I just thought there's something wrong with me, why I can't uh, turn the edit. We, you know, we used actual film back then and I would turn mm. the wrong way and backwards and, oh my gosh. Anyway, I have some dyslexia for the, the, is the best term that people have come up with to tell me what's wrong. What's interesting about my brain, I should say. Um, so I, I, when I graduated, I'm like, I'm writing. That's the thing. Kind of going back to those roots. If you can have roots when you're all of 22. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, but I really didn't know how to make it in the film business. And I look back at that young woman and she was just very naive and she had talent and she had drive, but she didn't understand connection or she didn't understand making relationships or anything like that. And I still don't, I'm so bad at it. It's really a big weakness for me, but eventually out of that time of great, Oh my God, what am I doing? And I can't finish anything. And no one's buying anything. And blah, blah, blah. Uh, I had a, a moment of great epiphany and, um, and, and it, probably one of the lowest moments of my life at that point. I've since had much lower ones <laughs> as age will give you. And um, the title for my first book popped into my head, which was the woman's comfort book. And I never had thought about writing a self-help book. I mean, never once. I didn't really even read them. 
And um, it became a couple, I don't know, two or three years journey. And really, when I look back on it, almost like a quest to figure out how to take care of myself while I was also figuring out how do you write a self-help book. I did keep trying to go back to screenwriting and failing at that and, and finally did sell the book proposal. The book became a word of mouth bestseller. And it really gave me an identity, which is a wonderful thing and a paycheck and a lot of success over time but it's also a dangerous thing. Yeah. <laughs> we all know identity, that that self-concept, that who am I, look who I am, is something that has to keep evolving. And the more we practice meditation or you know, whatever forms of awareness and attention um, everybody listening practices, the more we realize that our identity is something to hold it uh, gingerly. <laughs> so becoming a success was great. I got to really do work I cared about, and then eventually it became a trap. Mm hmm. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that. And then so you t you've talked at length also about your journey and kind of falling out of love with the, the kind of the thing, the, the spark of mm -hmm. loving writing and, and, you know, what, you know, how, how did you get it back? Yeah, yeah, that's so such a good question. <laughs> um. I think part of the way I get it back, because it is an ongoing question for me, is 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 multifaceted. And and one of them, one of the ways I do is is detaching again and again from the story of how I should feel while I'm writing. I am not a natural writer because of my learning disabilities. I do get lost, I do get in flow, I do get that high when you find just the right word or idea, or I have gone back and written fiction over the years, and there's lots and lots of that but I would constantly judge it against some ideal that I had. The ideal of Stephen King, you know, writing even on Christmas day or, you know, friends who just, you know, would turn on the light in the middle of the night and start writing and all of these different like myth mythology that we, we have around writing. So every time I start to struggle, I have to look at what those stories are that are coming in. And I, and I have to listen to what I tell the writers I work with, which is everybody's process is different. <laughs> Some people are never going to love writing. They love the act of having written. Mm -hmm. I don't like my first drafts. I don't like drafting. I have so many of the writers I work with who love to draft. I hate to draft. I love to rewrite. So for me, it's like getting, it's crawling back in my own skin again, I think that lets me love it. And then it's also connecting to what is my why for that piece of writing or that project? Like, why am I doing it? I'm a very purpose-driven person. Yeah. So I'm writing this new book because I really want to take the, the, the awful times that I, that I went through a particularly prolonged time um, about 10 years ago. And I want to turn it into something good. And I want to offer hope to, to women. It is a book for women or people who identify as women to hope to women who are in that sort of that helpless or despairing or left, uh, ap apathetic place uh, and show them that there's always a way out. Hmm. So I have to connect to that why when, when I'm pushing through the second draft, which I am right now. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, um, let's let's talk about creativity and just the, the creative process. You know, I I went onto your website, jenniferloudon.com, and um, I found the Get Unstuck and Get Back to Creating guide. I love uh, it. Yeah. I think it's really good. <laughs> it's a great one. And, um, you know, Paul. I think Paul Jarvis said something very nice about it. He said it helps you create the next step you know you should take but just haven't yet. So 
maybe speaking to, you know, because really the message is getting unstuck. Um, and I'm sure many, many writers and aspiring authors listening to this show right now are, you know, in the throes of being stuck or not feeling like they're being productive enough or, you know, uh, dealing with what we're all dealing with at this very uh, fraught time in history, right? Yeah. Where, you know, we're just constantly being um, inundated with uh, notifications and, and, you know, seemingly disruptive news uh, about the world at large. But yeah, how, how are we, uh, how are writers going to get unstuck? <laughs> That's not a small question you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Um, I I love that Paul said that about that guide because there is this sort of way that our brains are keeping us, the way our brains are constructed, the way our hormones are con working, the way our nervous system is working, that are keeping us from doing the thing we often know we want to do. Yeah. And one of the sort of learning edges for me in my own work and my own life, not just writing, and, and what I'm trying, playing with a lot with my teaching is how do we keep uh, becoming the observer of our, our brain, our brain system, the animal we are, I tend to call it, right? Here's the animal I am. It's the way I'm constructed. Everything about my brain wants to keep me defended within a particular parameter of actions because that's safe. It feels safe. And everything about my brain, mostly about my brain, wants to conserve resources. It doesn't really think it's a great idea to sit down and think. Thinking produces nothing. Looking for the next bright, shiny object that might be a nice piece of ripe fruit I can eat, on the other hand, that is really appealing, which is why we go on to Netflix and go on to Facebook and do our news feed like little rabbits with a, with a lever. Um, so I try to bring so much compassion and attention to the places where it's as if um, the metaphor that I think of is, a, is the wizard behind the curtain, right? In the mm -hmm. Wizard of Oz. And that my attention is Toto. Can I keep taking back the curtain on the things that tell me, the thoughts, the sleepiness? I was just working with a bunch of writers the other day, and they all were like, when I start to work, I get really, really sleepy. I'm like, <laughs> That's your brain saying, oh, no, this is stupid. This is a waste of time. This isn't going to get us anything. Just give it up and go do something that we know is safe, that we know is going to get us some reward, right? Mm -hmm. We have a total present bias. We want what's going to reward us in the moment. And so I think the more we can develop cognitive awareness of how we work as animals, the more we can begin to intervene at the level of the, um, the observer instead of looking through our brain's habitual responses and assuming that there's something wrong with us because that's what we do a lot of the time. Yeah. I'm sleepy because I don't want to write because this is a stupid idea because nobody who cares, no one's ever going to buy it anyway. 
it's short circuiting those moments over and over again yep. that I find incredibly important for getting unstuck. And like, you know, a kind of a global way that's not very specific, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, and I, and I know you talk a lot about the creative process as a whole and, you know, maybe reminding yourself that, you know, part of that is preparation, you know, preparing mm-hmm. your, your space or your desk or whatever it is that you need to feel safe writing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then there's also the incubation piece, right. Where, where it's okay to not be writing all the time or not be the most prolific writer on earth because you do actually need time to, to incubate these, these creative ideas, right. To, to understand, you know, part of the why about maybe, you know, what you're working on. Those, and those are important pieces, but then also realizing that procrastination can be a, a just a wicked feedback loop. It is a wicked feedback loop. <laughs> um, I, but I love what you said. There's such um, a drive in our culture and in the subculture of writers to be productive. I cannot tell you how many writers I've coached that are so sheepish if they don't write every day. And I'm always trying to get them to make the discernment between, are you spending time with your project? Are you doing the deep thinking? Are you doing the structural work? All of that stuff counts. It's not procrastination. You need to discern whether it's procrastination. Obviously, some of it can be, and research can certainly be one. But there's this this sort of this driving idea. It's so prevalent and so strong that if we're not actually producing words, we're not writing. And, and that I see it lead to a lot of really bad writing because people are like, well, I did my 500 words or I did my thousand words. I'm like, well, okay, great. But like for the sake of what, <laughs> what is it part of? Like, mm-hmm. what, what are you up to here? Um, and there seems to be a lot of rebellion against that because it, <laughs> it requires thinking and deciding and choosing. And there's so much of like, but I'm doing my writing practice and I'm doing my writing prompts. And it's like, that's fantastic. But at some point, if you want to, someone to read your work and you don't have to, it's still writing. It's so wonderful. But if you do want someone to read your work, you have to start asking these other questions. Yeah. It's like orienteering for, for creatives, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I think the other thing, just to go back to procrastination is, is procrastination is a complicated subject, but in many ways it's because we don't care about our future self. We kind of treat our future self like a stranger in our brains. They're just not, real to us. And it's really a form of mood management. The research is showing like we're trying to take care of ourselves in the moment. We're believing our brain that is saying, "Uh uh-uh, this is too scary. This is too hard. I don't know. This is overwhelming. And one of the ways that we can get around that, not the only way by any means, is to know what we're going to write before we sit down to write, to sit down at the computer or the uh, cafe with your notebook and just be like, okay, now I'm going to write is for many people, a overwhelming and scary and the brain <laughs> flips out. And it's like, if I'm get, but I know I'm going to sit down and write the moment, that moment in that scene, when my mom turned to me and said, oh, your dad and I had an affair for two years while I was married to Michelle's dad. You're like, oh, I've got somewhere to go. I still may get scared and I still may write crap, but I, I have something to latch onto. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I know you've talked about the neurobiology piece quite a bit and you know there's been more and more research from the neuro 
science side about, uh, or, you know, and, and psychology is part of that, I think, but also, you know, understanding that, uh, compassion piece, maybe that we need to be nicer to ourselves when we are in the throes of, uh, you know, that feeling. Yeah. The research is, com- there's not one shred of research that says being mean to yourself is motivating. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there really isn't. I mean, you know, lots and lots of other research like around willpower and other things you can find things falling apart. You can find all kinds of biases that creeped in into the study, uh, the research study structure, but not all, like the self-compassion is just 100%. It works. Um, and it is a practice. And, you know, one of the things that I do is I imagine I have a 25 year old daughter and, you know, I imagine her calling me and, um, you know, having, being scared about something or being overwhelmed. She's trying to decide whether to take a new job. Uh, she works in the mental health field in Seattle. And, um, you know, how would I talk to her? Or I imagine my dog, I, have, I had had two dogs. My one dog died a few months ago and she was just a neurotic mess. <laughs> and the last two years of her life, she was so sick and she almost died over and over again. Mm. Was, I was never mean to her ever. I never yelled at her for pooping all over the kitchen, even when I stepped in it. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't ever even occur to me. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I've been working on with writers is um, feeling into what in Buddhism, and I don't know what it's called in other religions, maybe Christ consciousness, or I need to research this, but in Buddhism, it's called basic goodness, right? This this natural part of us that, that goes and helps the woman get her uh, walker into the car, that, that waits for the person to cross the street who's, you know, in a wheelchair without thinking mean thoughts, who you know, who steps in their dog's poop and doesn't get upset and really learning to feel into that in those moments when you want to be cruel to yourself or when the voice in your head is saying, oh, this is so, this is such crap. Why should I even bother? Who cares? Hmm. So you can begin to activate that sense of trusting that you are good and kind and genuine at your core. And it begins to activate that sense of that writing can be fun. It can be a game. It might be a hard game, but it, it, your sense of self-worth isn't on the line. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, just, uh, this morning, uh, we have a, uh, we have a, basically a set of rules for our daughter. If she wants to, uh, get screen time, you know, on the iPad uh-huh. or watch a show. Um, she's only six, but that she has to, um, do a certain amount of reading and a certain amount of journaling, um, just, just to write her words, you know, I mean, she's not, she's not, uh, terribly prolific, but, um, I told her, you know, this morning she was, she was procrastinating, of course, because 30 minutes seems so daunting to a six year old, right? Uh Seems, Seems like forever. Um, and I said, well, let's play a game where, we just do three, uh, shorter, 10 minutes. Ten, and I, I said, you know, 10 minutes is not very long. You know, it goes by really fast. I said, why don't we put the timer on for 10 minutes and, uh, see how you do. And, and, and the 10 minutes went by instantaneously for her. She'd only written like five or six words, but she was having so much fun, like coming up with the story and she'd forgotten all about the timer, of course. Right. Um, and then she wanted to do it again. And of course she got through her 30 minutes, like very quickly and was so proud of herself. But, um, I love that. Yeah. I mean, talk a little bit about about that piece and about, 
you know, maybe I know, I know we don't like to say, you know, like organizational hacks, but like tried and tr- a tried and true method for, and I think that I've found also is that timer, um, unplugging, mm-hmm. unplugging from the internet, right? So many mm-hmm. best-selling authors talk about it. Unplugging from the internet, setting a timer for like 25, 30 minutes and you're not allowed to move, right? <laughs> until the, until the timer goes off mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you, you are going to get bored. Like so many of us talk about tired, bored, cause it's tedious, but then you forget. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think those, those are two time tested hacks. I use them all the time. I have a kitchen timer on my desk because I don't allow my phone in the office, except if I'm waiting for like a doctor's call or, you know, something. Yeah. Time. Yeah. I just, the, the phone is downstairs. And then when I go downstairs to take a break every hour, hour and a half, then I check my messages then, right? Big deal. So right. you have to wait for me to text you back. Woohoo. Um, and, and I use freedom to block the internet if I'm feeling like I'm in that sort of easily distracted place. A lot of times, especially with rewriting, I'm not, I forget the internet exists, but, but the thing about these, te- these are technical, like hacks are technical solutions. Technical solutions only work if you're also have worked or are working, you're adaptive. The reasons why you don't want to do the work in the first place. Mm. Your daughter doesn't have those. She's like, oh, right. So you gave her a technical solution, which was break it down into 10 minutes. Bam. It's like if you lose your keys all the time and a friend shows you their special little hook inside their backpack and then you get that hook and bam, you don't lose your keys. (laughs) It was a technical solution you just didn't know of. So it's great to try those, but if they don't work, instead of beating yourself up, to go back to the self-compassion part, then it's time to look at what is the, what is the narrative I'm telling myself? What is it about my brain and my uh, nervous system, my environment? What are the thing, What are the deeper reasons why I'm not getting my writing done? Mm-hmm. And what I find for a lot of the people that I work with, which may not be true for your audience at all, is they're really afraid of being seen. Interesting. They're really afraid of being, uh, they're being, yeah, of, of, of coming out and saying, I don't care what genre, it does not have to be memoir or personal essay, it can totally be fiction, but, or, or self-help, business, whatever. They're afraid of coming out and saying, this is what I believe. This is what I'm interested in. This is what, these are the characters I'm turned on by. And so they obfuscate either in their writing and or in not getting to it. Um, and I quite, I find it quite fascinating to watch <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. and at times incredibly maddening. And I just have to like, okay, wow. <laughs> hmm. Got to keep offering you different ways to get into that until something clicks at that adaptive level, the observer, the, the way that you observe, um, this passion, this desire to express something. Um, and I think be, part of the reason that being seen thing comes up is so, I, I, again, I work exclusively with women and women have been, you know, been a f- told and in so many different ways and shown in so many different ways, it's not safe to be seen. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I would be interested to put that theory to the test, um, you know, with a male audience as yeah, well, because in, in truth, I think you know, um, young men are raised to be, you know, uh, you know, tough or mm-hmm. ma- macho or, um, to have a stout chin and, 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 you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but you know, there is that, 
there's different reasons why they might be afraid to be seen. Sure. And I'm not just talking about like toxic masculinity, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is absolutely a problem, but, uh, just, uh, yeah. How, how were you raised? What, what did your dad say to you? Maybe that, uh, isn't allowing you to be seen as a, as a, as a male writer also, that'd be interesting to yeah. float that question. Thanks so much for joining us for this half of the Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm, where we also humbly ask you to support the show with a secure donation to help us keep going. Just click the little yellow PayPal donate button over at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. And thank you.